recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, we have Roland Duchesne, FRASC. He is a member of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's Light Pollution Abatement Committee as well as past president of the Calgary Centre of the RASC and an amateur astronomer astronomer with over 40 years of experience. He has been a popularizer of astronomy to the public for much of that time. His interests are astrophotography, meteorites, and light pollution abatement. He moonlights, ha ha ha, as an oil and gas geologist during the day. He was recently honored by having asteroid number 10087 named for him. He is also a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. His Twitters and uh, websites and all that will be on the Restoring Darkness podcast website. Welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast, Roland. Thank you for having me. No problem. Say hello to John. Say hello to John. Say hello, hello to Roland. John. Hello. Yeah. Okay. So I think, you know, I want to get right into the piece that you sent over. Um, and I want to dive right into it because we've read your bio. People know who you are. Let's give them something interesting right off the top here. Um, this idea of nighttime lighting and crime. Okay. What police departments and lighting engineers get wrong. I've interviewed um, some people, police officers, ex-police officers who study this. And they are very much under the impression that more light equals more safety. And I am not, I am very suspicious because, Roland, I see that as a failed hypothesis. And I also see it as a straw man argument where the more light equals more safety side is constantly telling us that we're required to prove them wrong rather than them prov- providing evidence about why they are right. I'm just going to let you comment on what I just said. Yeah, I mean, what we have are a series of studies and people can cherry pick what result they want based on, it turns out, ultimately on the methodology of the crime and lighting study. And essentially, there's sort of two ways you can do a study. One is a very passive way where you basically you collect the data 
from police reports and you compare that, you know, six months before changing the lighting and six months after changing the lighting. And the other type of study, so I call that a, a passive monitoring. And then there's something called active. And active monitoring is when they put researchers out in the field and they interview people in areas that they're planning to relamp, whether it's a street or an alleyway or something like that. And the active monitoring, then they, usually it's a lot shorter period, maybe three or four weeks of uh, talking to people about their perceptions of the crime, have they been mugged, whatever, in this time frame prior to the relamping. And then they come back after the, the street lighting has been changed and interview people again. And it turns out that the active monitoring crime studies almost invariably come to the conclusion that the lighting has actually made a big difference. Crime seems to have gone down. Whereas the passive monitoring, where you just use the aggregated police data, shows usually the opposite or no effect, but typically the opposite effect. And so this is telling something about the methodologies and perhaps there's some unintended effect of using one type of study versus the other. And what I've come to believe, and, and this is from reading all of these studies cover to cover, is that the active crime monitoring strategies where they put the people interviewing in the field have actually changed the behavior of the potential criminals. Mm -hmm. So it isn't so much that they're studying the impact of the lighting, it's the presence of active monitoring. And police will always tell you that, you know, if you've got surveillance, actual surveillance of people, people on the street, that reduces crime. And inadvertently, these active crime studies are doing the same thing. They've convolved the presence of the researchers with lighting. And that is the problem. So the reality is that if you look at what I consider the better design studies, which are these passive ones where you use the aggregated police data, some of them actually look 24 hour cycle, not just at nighttime to see what's going on. And what we find, and this is uh, in a study that many people would know of, the Chicago Alley Lighting Project showed this quite nicely. And that is that the crime shifted from the daytime into the nighttime once they added the lighting in the alleys. Hmm. So even though people felt safer, the real result was that there was more crime at night, but the daytime crime went down by the same proportion. So overall, the criminality of the areas didn't change, but the lighting afforded the criminals the mm -hmm. ability to do their work. That's been my hypothesis from, from that. That has been my hypothesis from 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 day one, and, and the, what I want to research. Let me let me just jump in. John is a lighting professional. He works in the lighting industry. Hang on one second, John. I know you're. I know we're both ready to pounce here, but um, <laughs> the and I'm also. I sell light bulbs every day, and I sell people lighting systems, outdoor, indoor, everything. And I'll tell you this: if you go and ask somebody, <clears throat> a person that knows nothing about lighting, and you and you ask them, is more light better? They're always going to respond yes. And if you ask them which lighting they want, they want 5,000 Kelvin white. If they look up at it, they say, I want a white light, 
right? And this doesn't, but the, the fact is that when you observe what they do, if you give somebody a dimmer, the first thing they do is dim the lights, okay? If you give someone a tuner for lighting, the first thing they do is tune it, tune it down to be warmer, okay? Yeah. And so, but when you ask them or you say to a person, I, do you want more light? The answer is yes, I want more light because the entire society role and we, that we live in is under the axiomatic presupposition that more light equals more safety and the whiter and the brighter, the better. And there's so much to unpack with, with all of that. One is essentially by creating super bright areas, you have the increase in contrasts. And so the areas that don't get lit mm -hmm. uh, end up being areas that are potentially more unsafe. Uh, so you've got that glare factor. The 5000 Kelvin you refer to, that has a lot of blue content in the spectrum. And something that most people don't realize is that we are all nearsighted in blue at night. And you can prove that to yourself every Christmas when you look at the LED multicolored Christmas lights that are strung up. If you walk back maybe five meters, six meters or more, and you look at a multicolored string of LEDs, you'll see that the blue ones are out of focus. Hmm. And that's because the eye does not focus the blue very well. And so having all that extra blue doesn't really add any visual acuity. I know there's some uh, roadway lighting studies that suggest that higher color temperature might allow peripheral vision to uh, be better with, with more blue light. Uh, but those studies were conducted with people wearing blue clothing specifically. Um, they didn't do the same experiment if people were wearing red clothing. So um, I think there's this whole mythology about having all of this extra blue for safety. And the other thing is, in order for us to have good color vision, what we really need is a smooth distribution of all the wavelengths in in the spectrum. If soon as and we all of us in this podcast are old enough to remember uh, mercury vapor lamps sure. for street lighting. And if you Watch went it, outside and you're wearing old. a blue... <laughs> you're on your own All there, right. Michael. <laughs> so, so hang on, hang on. So right. basically, I, I think... I, but my, I, point, I, my, my point yeah. being is you need that smooth spectrum. And we can tell colors, whether it's sunrise, sunset, or midday, just because we've got a smooth distribution of colors mm -hmm. in the spectrum. Sunrise, sunset, we're subtracting a lot of the blue out of that spectrum, yet we can still see colors. So the idea that you need more blue content, and police departments will tell you this, oh, you need the content because you need to see the vehicle's color. No, you don't need that. We use very little of the blue end of the spectrum for us to decipher the colors in our world. And we prove that daily at sunrise and sunset. So I, I'm going to turn it over to John here because I know I'm chomping at the bit. He is as well. But I'm just going to say something, John. It seems like us lighting professionals and the industry has failed to take into account how the human eye works when we're creating lighting fixtures, John. Uh, how cynical do you want me to be? <laughs> right. I'm well, glad I'm not the first. We can... We can, yeah, broad shoulders, all of us. 
Uh, I'm glad I'm not the first one to mention mercury vapor lamps mm. because in, in, in our lived experience, um, okay, that beat you, you've got to, you've got to own this in my lived experience. Mm. We went from the most efficient source that you could use, which was a mercury vapor lamp mm. that got switched out for a low pressure sodium lamp because that was mm. much, much, much more efficient and monochromatic and that really was what color is that car i have no idea mm -hmm. what color am i wearing i've no idea it's all brown the entire world has gone brown mm -hmm. so we moved to high pressure sodium because it was efficient enough but it wasn't as efficient as the socks as the low pressure sodium mm -hmm. you're right then we moved in depending depending on where you are now there was a shift into in towards into in uh, metal halide mm-hmm because metal halide was seen as a decent source and people were starting to get a little bit sensitive to actually what this light was doing. And now we move to LED. The overriding um, justification for changing a light source has been nothing to do with light, has been nothing to do with color, and has been everything to do with cost. Energy efficiency. So there's mm -hmm. energy, yeah, energy efficiency. So how much, you know, it's, it's the bangs for your buck. How much, how much light can you get for the money that you're having to spend? Mm. The socks lamp, the low pressure sodium lamp was the best there was, but the light was absolutely awful. But we didn't go back to mercury. We went to the high pressure sodium because that was good enough. We played with the white sodium even, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit better, but yeah, that was sure. never efficient enough. Yeah. And here we are with LEDs. Why are we, why have we got blue heavy LEDs? Because they are much, much, much more efficient mm -hmm. than the warm ones where should we be we feel as if we're going to back towards a, an led version of a high pressure sodium that we're heading back to a 2300 because we are now learning that we are killing things we're killing bats <laughs> and moths and we're yeah. killing the flora and the fauna around mm. us and we're not doing ourselves any 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 great any great help either so all of the here in the here in the UK, we have spent millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds putting in bad LED yeah, street man. lighting. Yep. All here. retrofit. You know, leave the post. You know, just take off the old lantern. Put the town where I live. It's just the same. That has um, been has been the story here in Calgary as yeah. well as as many cities around the world. Yeah, and we're on twenty five yeah. year yeah. contracts. Yeah, so so we're kind of... We, we, we kind started of out at... Uh, yeah, we started here in uh, Calgary with um, the high-pressure sodium with the salad bowl refractor, and then we initially went to the flat lens and basically took the uh, wattage of the high-pressure sodium in half um, and actually found out that the lighting was better even with half of the electrical costs. And then with the LEDs, they initially came in with 5,000 Kelvin. Um, here in Calgary, uh, I did spend some time down the road in Lethbridge, Alberta, where they uh, initially installed 6,000 Kelvin. Um, oh very God. harsh lighting. Yeah. You have no idea how bad that is. Uh, but even the 5,000 is, is pretty bad here. And they've tempered that down to around 4,000. Here in, in Calgary, um, but those five thousand Kelvin lamps are still around, and they have a lot of blue content. It's harsh, right? Besides not being able to focus the blue wavelengths of light, uh, our eye actually uses the blue wavelengths of light to gauge brightness. 
So, you know, when you have the high intensity discharge headlights and people hate those, it's the blue content in those lights that the, the eye is responding to. And they respond to these high color temperature LEDs, these 5,000 uh, Kelvin blue lights in the same way. Your eye responds with uh, almost a, a pain reception, uh, shrink down the pupil. Um, yeah. This is not good lighting. This is not safe lighting. And we also have to think about who's benefiting from the lighting. We, we started off talking about lighting and crime. Um, and the whole idea of first generation septed crime prevention through environmental design is that there was adequate lighting is the wording for surveillance because surveillance people eyes on the street would allow for lower crime rates. And that's pretty much the same case I just made with the uh, active monitoring crime studies uh, where people put researchers on the street. People reduce crime. But the, and I'm losing my point here because I got so many uh, thoughts going on here. But the, uh, oh my God, I'm having what, a, a what, brain what? moment here. Roland, okay. while we're waiting for so, while we're waiting for that to come back, can 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 I just put something on the table? Mm, Michael, are you okay sure. with this? Yeah, sure. This is a this is a conversation I was having yesterday. Uh, I, I was I was up in London and I was talking to the Institution of Lighting Professionals, which is the organisation in the UK, which is tr it was where the tr traditionally where the street lighting engineers all ended up. You know, they all they all carried their their ILP membership membership cards, and we were also talking about. The, the shift to, to LED lighting. And the problem that, and I'm guessing this is a global problem, I don't think it's just us, we can't measure the light. We can't measure the problem. Because when we talk to the manufacturers and they're saying, this lantern does exactly the same as the Son lantern that it's replacing. Mm. And here's the photometrics. And if you, if you just look at the photometrics, it's absolutely right. But if you put those two lanterns side by side, you go, there's no glare coming from that one, and there is enormous glare coming from that one. Why is that not being picked up in the photometric testing? And it's because we don't know how to test it. Exactly. So we've, got, so we've got a technology here which yeah. is wrecking people because yeah. now you know, people complaining the light is now coming into their bedroom. It's not the light that's coming into their bedroom. It's the glare yes. of the light that is being perceived yes. from their bedroom. Yes. And as you say, Roland, it's yeah. that blue content that's doing John, the damage. John, I talk about Corey Hart. I wear, I wear my sunglasses at night. Like, this is going to start to get serious. You know what I mean? You guys are old enough to remember Corey Hart. But, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, if there was a – you have these tunnels, okay, so people will dr be driving and they'll, and they'll be in that one level of light. Like, you talked about that contrast effect, right, that you were saying earlier, Roland. So you have someone yeah. driving. And uh, they'll be entering a tunnel, which is super bright. Maybe it was HPS before. It's very bright. Now they've changed it to LED. It's even brighter. And they're exiting. And it doesn't matter how many streetlights you have at the ex exit of that tunnel. Okay? It's going to be a massive contrast between inside the tunnel and outside the tunnel. And should there be an accident there, should there be an accident, the conclusion will be that there's not enough light. Like, this is how... Yes. This is how wrong the starting point, that's why I call it a failed axiomatic presupposition, Roland, where we, you know, every yeah. time we encounter these problems, the solution is always, well, there wasn't enough light. The lawyers are suing there. They didn't put enough lights. You know, it's like, when can we start, get to the point where, hello, light is also glare. 
depending on how you deploy it. Absolutely. What we what we have are uh, roadway lighting minimums. Always. Yes. That's what they're specifying. Minimums every time. And maximums never cross their mind. I, I totally get it. Um, so the, the, the point where I was at uh, was the, the lighting. Who is the end user? Who benefits? So if there's no one doing the surveillance and you add lighting, and we see this on buildings everywhere, security, or as I like to call it, insecurity lighting, mm. who benefits? And really, it's potential criminals. It's the same as if you had a table with a bunch of flashlights on them with a big sign that says free and put it out in the middle of an industrial area when no one's around at night. That's what you're doing with security lighting. You're providing illumination for crimes of opportunity. And most of these crimes are not, you know, despite what we see on television and in movies, they're not planned out, you know, elaborate schemes. It's somebody sees something, decides maybe they'll go for it. It's the crime of opportunity. And by having the lighting there, the only user is the potential criminal. It's not being used for surveillance. And and this got brought home to me um, a couple of months ago. I was in a, a local meeting of our local uh, illuminating engineering society chapter. And we had someone talking about, you know, beyond septet and all the questions from the lighting engineers at the end was, well, I've got this park cave Canadian word. Uh, that's a parking structure. Um, <laughs> just to, for those of the international audience, but very popular in Canada, multi-tiered <laughs> leveled parking garage out in the middle of a park, you know, in, in the, in a place. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So they had uh, they had a structure like that, and they were trying to figure out what was the best way to illuminate the areas where the vehicles were, and what was the best way to illuminate the stairwells to reduce the number of homeless people who were mm. doing drugs or whatever nefarious thing was. And they were looking for this, the speaker to tell them how much more lighting they needed. And I'm thinking, well, if there's nobody around at night to do the surveillance, who is that lighting serving? It's serving the client happens to be the homeless drug user. That's who's getting the benefit of that lighting. And so we really have to think about, do we need to illuminate? And we've touched on roadway lighting. Uh, yeah, we need to illuminate for pedestrian and uh, cyclist safety in many urban areas. But I'm... Um, we have a, a ring road around Calgary. Many major cities have those. It's basically a freeway. We don't need to illuminate those. Uh, it turns out overall safety wise, you're better off not illuminating them. Not that the light doesn't give some benefit at night, but what we find is that that's more than compensated for by the number of collisions between vehicles and the light posts. And so uh, most fatalities <laughs> we see um, really no it's it's a fact globally that's a fact highways Amazing. freeways do not need to be illuminated because the marginal improvement of the small amount of traffic at night that safety with the lighting is more than compensated for by the number of collisions that people when they leave the highway and hit those structures yep. so you're better off overall not illuminated and this and this is particularly bad for elderly people i had a person on the get a grip on lighting podcast 
that was telling me, and my, my mother-in-law was telling me she can't drive at night anymore. And she's passed on now, God rest her soul. But she would say to me, I can't drive up to your house at night. And I said, why is that? She said, every time I'm driving down the road, when I go near the intersections, after I come through the intersection, I can't see. Because the intersection's illuminated with high brightness, 5,000 Kelvin LED. And when she crosses through the intersection, she can see everything. She can see the intersection coming. She can cross through the intersection, but she can't see what's going on on the other side. And she was telling us it takes her two or three seconds for her eyes to readjust after. And so elderly drivers, elderly drivers whose eyes are maybe great during the day or whatever, they don't adjust as fast as younger drivers. And so when they're coming out of these high, they're pulling out of the Walmart gas station parking lot, they literally cannot see. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I'll I'll put my hand up. And this, this, this happened to me. This happened to me at the weekend. Um, I, I did a 200 mile journey, um, in the last half an hour where I get off the motorway and the difference was not that the motorway was lit but the oncoming traffic instead of it being separated by a central reservation so all of the brilliance of headlights is away over there it's now right in front of me and the contrast between the headlights and obviously particularly the LED headlights means that mm. this is me and I've never I've never experienced this before I am an old man but I've never, I, I've never felt that thing of I really don't know if I'm going to get the car through this gap mm. as I'm driving along yeah. at 50 miles an hour. You know. Mm. So this is this is absolutely yeah. real so and true. Besides the, the, yeah. So besides the problem you, that we just touched on about the glare response of the elderly eye, um, as we age, of course, our lens in our eye yellows, and it gets uh, defects in it, and it scatters light throughout the eye what wavelength scatters more the short wavelengths or the long wavelengths well we all know the short wavelengths scatter more and so again with the high intensity discharge headlamps or the led lamps uh, on the vehicles or the high color temperature um, street lamps that blue is scattering around um, in your eye and, and i i have seen that uh, myself uh, we had uh, little color-changing LED globes in the garden my wife wanted. They're low intensity, but I was out one night looking at the stars on my acreage, and this thing was just off on my periphery, just off to the side. And when it was red, I could see the stars. And when it turned blue, and this is very dim lighting, suddenly there was a wash of light throughout my whole eye, and it was coming in almost at 90 degrees, yeah. but it was getting into my eye and scattering throughout. And partly that's not an accident. Our biology, which um, our glare response and our ability to entrain our circadian rhythm to the day-night cycle relies on blue light scattering in the eye because the receptors for those are scattered throughout the retina. They're not for imaging, but they're to designed to tweak on that blue light and Tell us about glare and tell us about circadian timing. And so the fact that this blue light was coming in almost at 90 degrees to my eyeball, making it in and then scattering throughout and giving me this light blue wash, that's exactly what the eye is designed to do. So no surprise that it's a problem when you're actually trying to use visual acuity in blue lit uh, regions. And by blue, I mean bright white, 
high blue content, white lighting. If, if we, we, we now, I think we've got enough knowledge and awareness, experience uh, that, that we can see what the problem is. Roland, you, you've just, if you were stood in front of a committee of people who could make decisions about what color street lighting should be, roadway lighting should be, and what, how intense that should be, all that knowledge is, it should be driving us towards a much better nighttime environment. So the question is, how close are we to a better nighttime environment. I mean, you're you're engaged with committees, aren't you? That that that, that are are having these discussions. Are are they hearing you? Yes. Are the right people hearing? I you? don't think it stopped getting worse yet. I'm just going to jump in. Well, no, no that's yeah. that would be my point. <laughs> it's absolutely getting worse. And um, at that uh, meeting that I alluded to with the Illuminating Engineering Society of North America, the local chapter, um, the person. Uh, who gave the talk, put up something from the American Medical Association talking about the risk of blue light. And this is a statement that the AMA made maybe about 10 years ago or 12 years ago or something like that. There was a visceral negative reaction from the lighting engineers. And basically they felt that the American Medical Association should just stay in their own lane yep. and not exactly. worry about, uh, you know, lighting. Cause yes. What does the you know the medical association know uh, that the lighting engineers don't know? It was uh, I was completely taken aback by the reaction. Yeah, it's it's actually uh, the lighting the industry. The lighting industry is um, so we uh, you know uh, the 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 association that sponsors this podcast is a small boutique lighting association in the U.S. called the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. So we're frontliners. We sell to the end user, and you know. Right. Um, the the lighting industry i uh, this is the illustration i like to put when it comes to light pollution um they have their heads in the sand like they're they have very few people in the lighting industry are willing to acknowledge it almost no manufacturers except the sponsor of this show evluma has a section on their website that's dark sky lighting where you can make selectable you know dark you can pick dark sky friendly lights and you know the resistance to change is almost becoming I'm all, it's, it's almost becoming a moral argument now where it's immoral for this industry to, to evade this issue any longer. The, the mounting evidence that light pollution is, is pollution, that it's bad. We have the technology. We can solve this problem. And, you know, climate change needs to back off. I, every time they do this, they switch to climate change and equity, diversity, inclusion. You bring up, you, you bring up um, light pollution at a at a lighting conference other than nailed and the first thing they do is start talking about climate change and look at you know light light pollution abatement will contribute to climate change abatement that's the number one way this industry can contribute to that problem and so stop giving all the money to a, a swedish 10 year old or however, however old she is now greta and give it let get the lighting industry on board and you know what roland we are going to kick off the biggest lighting boom in the history of the industry. Roland, you are now about to hear the, the, the huge difference in opinion between Michael and myself, <laughs> because the lighting industry is already at the table. The lighting industry controls this argument. The thing that depresses me is that, you know, I, yeah, I'm a lighting designer. I've been a lighting designer nearly all my adult life, and I charge my clients money to do design for them. 
And part of that independence means I am in nobody's pocket. Mm -hmm. And I worry who is in whose pocket. Sure. It benefits the manufacturers to do bad lighting. Mm -hmm. It benefits the manufacturers to put, to put out blue white light. And it benefits the, the manufacturers to have engineers say, you're all right. Yeah, we agree. In with the short term. It's a well, short term. You know, okay. no. Is it the short Look, term? Okay, well, here's what I would say. Let's put on my tin hat and Sorry. I'm going <laughs> I'm to I'm gonna put on my tin hat and I'm going to throw it over to Roland, okay? So let's say you really wanted to create the biggest lighting boom of all time. Okay, let's change everything to bad, crappy outdoor lighting so then in five years we can come back with the dark sky lighting and charge everyone all over again, Roland, to redo all the lights. So maybe there's a plan. But people won't. <laughs> no, people won't do that because people will not understand that the overabundance of lighting is actually bad because we're trained from childhood that lighting is good i need that light on the the little night light on the wall in my bedroom to make sure uh, i'm safe from the monsters in the closet you know we are raised that light is always good and if you just look at how we use language you know i saw the light uh, christ you know, is the light of the world yeah it's it's basically light is a force of good and darkness is evil and and you'll never untrain people from that it's in our reptilian brains it's archetypal from yeah you know, yeah we you know we we uh, we lit a fire on the savannah in africa and hey tonight that lion stayed away good for us good for that light that we have this fire we have evolved to love light and and we're not going to untrain people um, at all, you know. It's and we, and we see this, you know, as lighting gets uh, more efficient. We can't be this dumb. We, be, we can't be this dumb. We are this dumb. It, there's a word for it. There's Jeevon's paradox, where you basically sure. make something yeah. so uh, efficient that you actually end up using more and more of it to beyond the initial amount. So when you change it out incandescent to something more efficient. Um, People added more lights, and we see that now with LED lighting. It's it's decorating. You the, see it the in lighting design of, too. You see it in lighting design. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, and there are more Christmas lights than ever uh, because it's inex it's viewed as inexpensive. It's viewed as environmentally friendly because it uses less electricity. But we're using more electricity because we're using so much more LED lighting. Totally. And you know what? I, I, I've called it on this show. I don't know if I've said it when John has been on or not, but I think this is the issue for the industry for the 21st century. That's what I believe. I don't think it's going to be solved next week. I think it's going to be 70 to 80 years before we'll all be dead by the time this issue gets resolved. But I think it has momentum behind it. I think it I think it's going to happen. I, I, I think we have long. I, I'm more 20, 30 year time frame that we're going to turn this ship around. But I th the, the, yeah. Michael, you were, Michael, you were, you were talking about putting up crappy lighting mm -hmm. and then letting it fail and then getting it right the second time around. The crappy lighting, I need to be careful because there might be lawyers listening to this. The crappy lighting is already out there. You sure. Those 25-year those contracts where those lanterns would fail within the first 10 years are already out there if they last for 10 years. Mm. So I, you know, I'm... I am a little bit more confident that the, 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 the potential for change 
isn't going to be. I mean, it's not. It's not going to be comfortable because no one's costed this into the, in, into the sums of, of of how you run a, a utility or how you run a local authority, that they don't want to spend any money on for another twenty five years, but they will have to because there will not be any lighting there. And it's a simple. But yeah. Roland, you are absolutely right. I mean, it it is that thing. Politicians have to do something. Not, not doing a thing is not working. Now, if it's dark, you can add light. It's a thing you can do, and you can hang your manifesto on it. But all you're doing is that. Well, we're just going to leave the dark there. Well, that's just that's just dereliction of duty. But we don't. Can we add the darkness? Like go the other way around. You know. Yes, of course. Well, uh, that's. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I want to give you guys a little anecdote, and you're going to like this, Roland. Okay. I, I, I'm going to give away people a little secret, a Colligan secret that I've used for years, okay? And it's really old-fashioned, okay? So I live, I also live, uh, all three of us are, are very blessed. We live in country environments, so I live outside of Toronto um, on a farm. And my area is very rural, but it's close to Toronto. And so we do get a good view of the stars. But um, a new neighbor moved in, and uh, he put a rink in his backyard. And... He lit this rink up, boy. Oh, man. Okay? <laughs> and he had, like, you know, he his lights could be seen and from three or four kilometers away. I'm not kidding you. Okay? So I could see it. I live on a concession road, so there's a farm concession in between there. You could see it from the corner of the, of the, uh, the um, sideline in the concession. From the other concession, you could see his lights. And from the north concession and the other sideline road. Okay? And so I decided to send this fellow an anonymous letter. Okay? And so I wrote him a letter anonymously. And I said, you know, I talked about light pollution and how, you know, it's wonderful that you have a rink. But could you kindly, when your rink is not in use, turn off your lights? And you know what? People respond to those kinds of... And I put, thank you, your country neighbors of Stouffville. Right? And you know what? People respond to that kind of thing rather than a face-to-face confrontation. They don't know who's sending them the letter. And I put on it like a, I know his neighbors don't like it either. Nobody wants your damn rink light shining 27 uh, houses down into my window, buddy. And, you know, this guy's completely obtuse to this. And so he got this letter. Immediately, three days later, the lights went off. And so we can do things locally to make this happen. Lighting a rink is tricky, and we we yeah. actually have a situation where one of our uh, candidate dark sky preserves in Canada uh, also has in the winter time a illuminated nighttime skating rink on one of the frozen lakes, and we've uh, we collectively our committee have spent a fair amount of time discussing what kind of lighting, what color temperature, and all that that would be uh, permissible for a rink light in a dark sky preserve. Boy, I tell you, this is probably one of the hardest things to illuminate in a dark sky setting because, of course, the the ice is <laughs> very, very uh, white and reflective. And so um, you, you're really, really trying to find fine-tune how much light do you really need and how much uniformity and that's but the most important thing is to turn it off when it's not in use it's like nobody's going to be using it at one in the morning right 
Go ahead, John. Just yeah, or, or just turn or just turn it off. Yes. Just it's just it's, you, yeah. it, it, you know what what takes priority here? This is this is people being species dominant again, <laughs> and and yeah, and 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 in order that they can run around on 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 some metal skates, we have to try and and destroy everything else. We just say it's dark. Yeah. Go home. Yeah, it's time to go home. Go, go, go to a rink which is in the middle of a city. Move the rink. Nobody goes outdoor skating at 10 o'clock unless they're drunk. Okay? So we don't want drunks on the ice. I mean, this is Canada. I'm sure half of them are... <laughs> there's a bunch of ice fishers. There's a bunch of ice fishing guys that brought their skates and are planning to go drunk skating at night. Okay? We don't need those no, guys. And, and that was one of the things. It's a, cur a curfew for the timing, right? You, you do want to, yeah, yeah. to limit the, the lives uh, of, you know, of that. For sure. So I, I think what, what you know, I, we could talk about the crime and all that sort of stuff further. I'm gonna. I, I know we, there's some other things on here, but we're if you can believe it, we're coming up on 40 minutes um, that we've spoken already. Uh, oh man, I'm, it seems like a lifetime, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, you know, let's talk about the community-driven dark sky initiatives because you know I I, well, I, I think that's an important point, and we could probably have you on again. I, I, just oh, yeah. be, yes, please. Uh, yeah, uh, and just the thing that Michael said there about the letter, albeit that it's anonymous, but the idea that someone in the community takes an action and from that action, good things happen. Mm. That is actually what I, what I think we're talking about here, isn't it? About, about the idea of community-led, community-driven um, mm. actions, community-driven uh, ideas that we can go because we're trying to reach a better place. Mm -hmm. I, how is how is that for you, Roland? Because this is what I want to hear. I, I think that, that I think that's perfect. I am actually surprised the letter worked as well as it did, and and part of the reason for that is that um, I have looked at the recommendations for how to talk to your neighbor about their bad lighting. And so I've, I've done a fair amount the of recommendation that. Recommendation is don't talk to them. Send them an anonymous letter so they don't know who it's coming yeah. from and their brains are going to go crazy. The power of the anonymous letter is very powerful. He tied the letter to a rock and he threw the rock through the window. No, yeah. I used Canada so Post. <laughs> Anyway, you, you made it sound as if it came from a group of people, which sure. is probably a, a smart thing. Uh, but actually, they, they do suggest that actually talking is the best way to do that. Uh, you know, come over with uh, some drinks and on a, on a nice uh, day and just have a conversation about that. And that the letter writing, maybe anonymous might be the way to, to avoid this, but the letter writing is actually the, the the last resort because it can actually uh, get people's backs up and then uh, and then the next thing is uh, you're in court. Um, so I was interested to hear that it, that the letter worked and maybe it was because it was anonymous. And anonymous letters because... are very powerful actually. It screws with people psychologically. They don't know who it is. They don't, they can't yeah. name their pain. It it's not the asshole up the road. I know that guy. He's a jerk. He likes to tell it. No, it could be anybody. Could be anybody. It man. could be anybody. Yeah. Well, that's something I'm I'm learning here. I'm going to take that away uh, from from this podcast, if nothing else. Uh, I think that's a, a, a good lesson. So, community driven. Um, we've had a, a great relationship um, with the 
local government out, just outside the city of Calgary, and it happens to have uh, the University of Calgary's major observatory within the lands there. Mm. Also, my club has a, uh, an observatory, happens to be in the same county. And a few years ago, the county decided that they were going to carve off some areas that were specifically um, dark sky areas to protect both observatories within the county lands. And currently, um, the councillors, and we have several of them on this committee, are driving the process to be, see if they can come become a dark sky community. And essentially, uh, they are driving the process. I am part of that. We're having a meeting tomorrow night again. Uh, we meet once every month or two, uh, doing different projects. And um, it's interesting that the politicians have seen this as a benefit. And it was partly because of the the impact that the university observatory has in the area it's kind of prestigious and so on but now they're looking at this is the rural lifestyle right next door to a major metropolitan city of over a million population and they want to protect that rural lifestyle and so there are uh, signs in the county dark sky country um, you know advertising this we have uh, smaller community uh, aggregates of houses that are talking about, you know, they want one of those signs in their neighborhood, you know, just to remind people, this is why we live outside the city. You know, this is something special. Mm -hmm. And so um, what, what I have found, and I've been advocating for light pollution control for over 30 years, is suddenly we have a bunch of new allies mm -hmm. who are politicians, citizens. I mean, this group that we're meeting tomorrow, it you know includes representatives from the University of Calgary's uh, observatory team, but it, you know it does have more than one politician. It has uh, another uh, group of people who are part of uh, what we call a nocturnal preserve that the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada recognizes as a dark sky site, not just for the astronomical aspect, but because it's important for the ecological integrity of a region. And they actually, that group at the Ann and Sandy Cross Conservation Area approached us at the RESC to say, we'd like some sort of designation. So we actually looked at this and said, this is a great idea. Um, it spreads the word about uh, you know, the natural dark night. It spreads the word about light pollution abatement um, and makes it part of a more uh, holistic ecological argument as opposed to Oh, we want a dark sky preserve because we want to observe the stars because that message resonates well with astronomers yeah but makes us look like a special but there is no lighting people at the table that may be a good thing there isn't any lighting no at, at this point <laughs> yeah yeah see, that's, no, they, I, they, I totally listen that. what what the goal of this podcast so this podcast was created by people within the lighting industry that's the, the we're in the lighting industry and John joined about, you know, I don't know, 20 episodes ago or something like that. And to make because we have a very broad international audience. Um, and so he's over in the UK and it's a great fit. So but it's a tragedy, John, that the lighting industry uh, largely continues to ignore this issue. And I hate to, I, you know, I, I don't know why. Uh, well, it, I, I don't I, I don't know. I, 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 Roland, you. 
I, I don't know what to say. I do uh, plan to reach out to my local chapter of the Illuminating Engineering Society. Uh, they've had me actually um, on as a speaker and as a panel speaker uh, after a, a movie night of, on light pollution abatement. And they had me uh, commenting uh, after a movie called Losing the Dark. And they set the whole thing up and asked, hey, we're showing this movie. We'd love to have you. So there is some dialogue here. Um, but uh, I do plan to, to do a presentation to them to kind of, I don't know, look at the mythology of lighting a little bit, you know, that, yeah. that lighting engineers use to employ to, to justify what they're doing. And I want them to really think about these ideas. Like, do we need all that blue light? Should we be illuminating highways? I don't think so. Mm -hmm, um, I agree with that. Yes, we illuminate uh, residential streets and anywhere where, where there's a potential for pedestrian and, and cycle uh, conflicts with vehicles. Absolutely. What about security lighting? That's a whole can of worms. And I don't think in many cases that the security lighting is doing what it needs to do, which is produce, producing an actual safe environment. It's creating the false impression of a safe environment but in fact, who is the end user, as I said before, the end user in this case is probably the criminal. Yes. Because there's no one around to do the surveillance, which is why the lighting was supposed to be there in the first place. So damn, and it's so damn ugly. John, I'm going to throw yep. it over to you before I ask for final thoughts from Roland, because we're coming up on almost 50 minutes now. Okay. Yes, of course. Um, I, think one, I think one of the problems that we've got is that lighting is weaponized. It's this mm. idea that if you make it brighter, you make it bigger. It's a bigger gun, basically. Yeah, sure. And 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 the cruder that is, the more powerful that is. Is is seems to be part of part of the mythology. One of the things that that we get every now and again, uh, a, a new piece of technology comes along, a new piece of software comes along, and they go, "Is this the end of the lighting designer? We don't need lighting designers anymore because there's a piece of software that'll do it." And you 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 pause and you stop and you think and you go, actually. If you play this right, there is only more work for exactly. the lighting designer. Agreed. And I think the light I think the lighting engineers, the old street lighting guys, if we can get them to that place where there's there's more work for them to be done. I mean every every street lighting engineer I know in the UK down here is rushed off their feet because their departments have been stripped out of so many people. And so nobody can do the job properly. So every time a scheme comes in, it has to go out to a manufacturer to design it. So, you know, so they, they, they've really got their backs against the wall. So there's no room for creativity. And yet, Roland, the discussions you're having all lead to creativity. They all lead to a new yep. way of thinking. They all yep. lead to a new way. And the reason yep. that it's not just a lighting issue, Michael, is because the people who live in those areas, the people who live on those streets, are not lighting people. They are the mm -hmm. people who live on the streets, Decent and Canadians. they're the people who can. Yeah. yeah, and it's every it's every village, it's every street, it's every town. Mm -hmm. If we can just f find this way to get people involved in that rich conversation of where about where they live, that's my bit, Roland. I, so so hey, hey, thank. I hope we can talk again mm -hmm. with about. I would we'll love to have small. another session with you guys. There's so much, there's so much other stuff that I do um, that I'd love to be able to, you know, continue this conversation and move it into other areas. One thing about lighting engineers, was, uh, you know, I, I know several of them 
fairly well. And I know they're always striving to do the right thing. Sure. And the question, are they able to understand in the holistic sense what the right thing is? Or have they been kind of put the, the blinders on and, and said, this is, this is how you achieve the right thing. And I think that's the, the real uh, existential uh, conversation that needs to happen with lighting engineers because they're motivated by doing the right thing. And we just have to understand those motivations versus the motivations of uh, light pollution uh, control advocates. And also nature has to weigh in herself as to what is really yep. the right thing yep. to do. And so, you know, what the right thing to do is, folks, the right thing to do is to kick off the dark sky lighting boom. Let's go. Everyone wants to get rich, right? Like this is a win, 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 win for everybody, right? So lighting industry peeps, all you folks out there listening, listening to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast or whatever, this is going to be a bonanza. So the dark darkness restoration and preservation is a bonanza. Get it into your head. It means more lights most of the time. It means the best control systems. Yes. Restoring darkness. We got big, big news coming out soon. Very 90% it's going to happen. And if it happens, look out, folks, because we got something really big. The National Association of Innovative Lending Distributors is working on it right now. They're putting the funding in place for this thing. This is going to be a monster move by a really small group of, group of lighting distributors who really care about this issue. And we're going to put something out that's going to change the world. I'm not kidding you. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.